The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Philosophy for Our Times. In today's episode, we'll be examining the hard problem of consciousness. That is to say, how and why do we experience consciousness? And more importantly, what's the best theory for examining it? To debate this issue, we have on our panel philosopher and proponent of panpsychism, Philip Goff, neuropsychologist Nicholas Humphrey, and parapsychologist Susan Blackmore. Barry C. Smith hosts. Thank you. So consciousness has been with us for a long time, and we're all very familiar with our own consciousness, I hope. But how do we get a handle on it? How can we explain it? Is there progress being made in the neurosciences or in uh, psychology? Is there progress being made in philosophy? Are there ways in which we might have a better understanding of what it is, where it came from, how it works, and how we accommodate it in the physical world? So Philip, perhaps you could start and give us your four minutes worth, please. So my starting point is we know that consciousness is real. Nothing is more evident than the reality of one's own feelings and experiences. And yet nothing is harder to integrate into our scientific worldview. It's generally agreed that we don't really have even the beginnings of an explanation of how brains produce consciousness. This is the so-called hard problem of consciousness. But although this problem is taken very seriously, many people argue that, well, look, if you just look at the great success of physical science in explaining more and more of our universe, this ought to give us confidence that if we just plug away at our standard methods for investigating the brain, we'll one day solve the problem of consciousness. However, the problem of consciousness is radically unlike any of the other challenges physical science has ever faced. The problem is that physical science works with a purely quantitative vocabulary, whereas consciousness is an essentially qualitative phenomenon, just in the sense that it involves qualities. You think about the redness of a red experience, the sweet smell of flowers, the taste of coffee. You simply can't capture these kind of qualities in the purely quantitative language of physical science. And indeed, this point was well understood by the founder of physical science, namely Galileo. So Galileo never intended physical science to be a complete description of reality. He hoped that it could deal with the mathematical features of reality, but he took it for granted that it couldn't capture the qualities of consciousness which he took to reside in the soul. And moreover, I've argued that the reason physical science has done so well 
is because from the start, Galileo kicks things off by taking consciousness out of its domain of inquiry. So he gave physical scientists a more manageable task. So what about dualism, the view that consciousness is a property of the immaterial soul outside of the physical body and brain? Unfortunately, this view is also hopeless, in my view. I think contemporary neuroscience gives us incredibly strong evidence that consciousness is in the brain rather than the soul. So what are we going to do? When I studied philosophy in the dying embers of the 20th century, we were taught that these were the only two options. You either think physical science will explain it, in which case you're a materialist, or you think it's non-physical, in which case you're a dualist. Fortunately, there is a middle way, the view known as panpsychism. So rather than try to explain consciousness in terms of utterly non-conscious brain processes, as we've been trying to do very little success for many decades now, the panpsychist aspires to explain the complex consciousness of human and animal brains in terms of simpler forms of consciousness. So the view feels a bit wacky, a bit new age, but I think we should judge a view not on its cultural associations, but on its explanatory power. What panpsychism offers us is a way of integrating consciousness into our scientific picture of the world, and it does so in a way that avoids the deep problems associated both with materialism and with dualism. And for that reason, I think at the very least, it's a position we should take very seriously indeed. Thanks, Philip. Nick, would you like to take on the, yeah, the so challenge? Philip, thanks for that introduction, because I think you're absolutely right. We need to start by considering the problem of phenomenal consciousness, the, the qualities of experience. Um, but if, like me, you're sure that the brain is actually responsible for producing them, then to answer the question which we were originally posed, can we explain it by examining the brain? I think the answer must, in principle, be yes. I'm quite sure that if a scientist were clever enough, then by examining the in, in what's going on in my brain right now, he, he or she could, in principle, deduce what it's like to be me at this moment. But the problem is, of course, that no one is clever enough to do that at the moment. We're very far from being able to deduce consciousness from the brain. So that way of approaching it is, I think, a non-starter. So the question is, where should we start, if not with neuroscience? Well, I agree with Philip that we must start with the experience itself, um, the phenomenal feel of consciousness, uh, the, what it's like to see red or to feel pain or to taste salt. And we must decide exactly how best to characterize that experience, both subjectively and so far as possible, objectively. But then, rather than going straight to the brain, because I think that's the wrong way, we need to start theorizing. We've got to come up with some theoretical model which explains how a physical mechanism of any kind could, in principle, deliver consciousness as we've decided we want to describe it. Now, I'm not saying that's going to be easy. In fact, we immediately run up against what seems to be an insuperable problem. And Phillips just mentioned it. For surely we won't be describing consciousness correctly unless we recognize that it is indeed somehow immaterial, out of this world. The essential feature of consciousness is that it's like something that couldn't be delivered by a physical brain. As Colin McGinn's colorfully put it, the brain is just the wrong kind of thing to give birth to consciousness you might as well assert that numbers emerge from biscuits or ethics from rhubarb. So, well, what should we then do? Well, maybe, just as Phillips has been recommending, we are simply going to have to move the goalposts, redefine what we mean by a physical mechanism. If we can't get consciousness from unconscious physical elements, then maybe the elements are a little bit conscious to start with, 
or to go back to biscuits and numbers, if we can't get numbers from innumerate biscuits, as we know them, then biscuits must be a little bit numberly to start with. That's to say that we are going to take the route of simply postulating the existence at a small scale of the very thing we're trying to explain. Now, as Bertrand Russell, I know who's one of Philip's heroes, said, the method of postulating what we want has many advantages. They're the same as the advantages of theft over honest toil. <laughs> and I think, indeed, that panpsychism is a wonderful outright example of theft. Um, so what do we do, then, if we don't take that lazy route? What if we choose the scientific path of honest toil? Well, we've got no choice but to go back and have another look at the phenomena we start with, and maybe even a sceptical and maybe a rather worrying look. If consciousness seems to be not of this world, and actually is of this world, then presumably it cannot be quite what it seems. Well, what can it be? Surely it has to be some kind of magical invention, a fantasy, a work of art. I'm not going to use the word illusion, though I touch on that. I think I'm going to call consciousness a work of art uh, created by the brain. And if that's right, and I'm pretty certain, certain that it is, where does that leave brain science? Well, presumably the task becomes to discover uh, how the brain constructs a work of art. But we're certainly not going to get the answer by going in with our MRI machines or whatever and examining the machinery. The brain with its 100 billion nerve cells is just too impossibly complicated and messy. As I said, we're going to have to start with a theory, a theory of what kind of mechanism could possibly be doing the trick of playing that trick on us. And if we can get to that and decide what it is we're looking for, will it make sense to get our hands dirty and delve into the brain to look for evidence that there is, in fact, such a mechanism at work within our heads? And my own work now over the last 20 years has been precisely to try and discover what kind of trick is being played and how a brain could be delivering it. Thanks, Nick. That certainly takes up the challenge. Uh, Susan, where do you stand on the whole Well, if the question <coughs> is how far can we understand consciousness from looking at the brain, a brain on its own is not enough. Well, the job of the brain, after all, is to control its body, along with the rest of the nervous system. And so we need to consider the brain in the body and in the world. That's definitely the way things are moving within consciousness studies. But I want to pick on a particular problem that I think is, is very evident in those scientists who are really trying to use neuroscience and brain scans and so on to understand consciousness. Very popular is the idea of looking for the neural correlates of consciousness. And this idea started with Francis Crick back in his famous 1994 book, um, The Astonishing Hypothesis. You can sum up The Astonishing Hypothesis as you're just a bunch of neurons. And, of course, people don't really like that idea. But he made the very sensible statement that, I mean, after all, he'd solved the DNA problem and all that, you know. If you're going to go into a new science, and he thought he could solve the consciousness problem as well, if you're going to go into new science, you start with correlations before moving on to un try and understand causes. So, hence started the idea of looking for the neural correlates of consciousness. A classic example in this paradigm is a sort of experiment where you can take people, or even other species, and have something like um, you know, a Necker cube where it flips, you can see it looking this way, or it flips and it looks the other way, or the famous duck rabbit, and it's impossible for you to see both at once. 
So the idea would be, well, when I'm conscious of the duck as opposed to the rabbit, what's going on in my brain? Can I do a brain scan or EG or something like that? And if I could see which bits are changing, I'd have found consciousness. And there have been lots of experiments like that. And they tend to find all different bits of the brain are the answer to what flips when your conscious vision flips and don't seem to be quite getting to the answer, but they keep looking. I think it's completely the wrong approach because, as Philip has kind of hinted at, it's kind of hidden dualism. The basis here is that the brain gives rise to consciousness. Consciousness is something other than or more than the activity of the brain. So we've got to find consciousness itself and where it is in the brain, which brain processes give rise to it, and so on. And there are alternatives. There's panpsychism, but you may have made it sound like that's one thing, and it's not. There are lots and lots of versions of panpsychism. We may get to some of those. There's illusionism. Now, both Nick and I have chapters in a book called Illusionism, and you refuse to use or don't like using the word illusion. I would say consciousness is a big illusion in the sense we've got it completely wrong. Right from young childhood, children start to distinguish between living and non-living, thinking and not thinking. It's very natural to us to imagine that I do some things consciously and I do others unconsciously. And from there to think there are some processes in the brain that are conscious processes and others that are unconscious. It's just so easy to think that way. I think all of that is wrong. I think that consciousness is something we attribute to some parts of what we're doing or some things we see after the fact. We're completely deluded about it. We will, in the end, find some kind of possibly panpsychic, some kind of answer. But I think what we should be doing is looking in the brain and looking in our evolutionary story for what it was that made us so deluded. That we might find. But consciousness itself, I would say, we never will because there's no such thing. Thank you. Another provocative statement. So we've had the positions laid out for us. So I, I want to move to sort of one of the key themes here is what is consciousness? Now, Philip's told us we all know, but I think as philosophers, even the stuff we all know and that's very familiar, we still crave something by way of explanation, and we certainly want it characterized. So, Philip, can we start by thinking at how we characterize consciousness and get it into view right. a little bit? And the word consciousness is a little bit of an ambiguous word. Sometimes it's used to mean something cognitively sophisticated of a kind we might be reluctant to ascribe to non-human animals, maybe self-consciousness or awareness of self. But the way I use it and the way it's generally used in, in philosophy, I think, is, is just to mean experience. You know, pleasure, pain, emotions, visual or auditory experiences. The philosopher Thomas Nagel famously characterized it with this phase, phrase, something's conscious if there's something that it's like to be it. So there's something that it's like for a rabbit to be cold or to be kicked or to have a knife stuck in it, to take a vivid example. There's nothing that it's like for a chair to be cold or to be kicked. There's nothing that's like from the inside, as it were. So this is all, all we mean by consciousness. So yeah. can, can we ask, I mean, you said Nagel's view is that there's something it's like to you know, be a rabbit with a knife stuck in it, or maybe there's something it's like to taste coffee, but there's something it's like to be a chair. But for you, if, if there is consciousness a little bit everywhere, including in the chair, isn't there? a little bit of something it's like for the chair. Can you say a bit more about that? I mean, in this, it, it doesn't mean everything's conscious, although a literal reading of the name might suggest that. Uh, I guess the basic of the panpsychism is consciousness is fundamental and ubiquitous. So the basic constituents of the physical world, perhaps electrons and quarks, have unimaginably simple 
forms of experience. But that doesn't mean that any random collection of particles is conscious. So it doesn't mean this chair is conscious. It just means that it's made up of things which are conscious. Humans have very rich, complex consciousness. Horses less so, maybe mice less so. It seems completely coherent to suppose that consciousness exists in unimaginably simple forms. And that's the panpsychist position. Of course, the other term for it is subjectivity, subjective experience. And I think this is another source of the, the difficulties for materialism, if I may, that physical science aims at a completely objective description of reality, a description that could be, could be understood by anyone, you know, no matter what your life experience. You know, if, if there were aliens that visited from another planet who had very different sense organs and very different experience, maybe they couldn't understand our art or our music. But if they were intelligent enough to know mathematics, they could grasp our physics. So physics aims at what Thomas Nagel again called the view from nowhere. Whereas consciousness is essentially subjective. You can only understand something's consciousness if you could take its perspective. So a blind neuroscientist, no matter how much they know about what goes on in the brain when you see colors, they'll never know what it's like to see colors because they can't take the perspective of a sighted person. Or Nagel's example, we'll never know what it's like to, no matter how much we know about the neurophysiology of a bat, we'll never know what it's like to be a bat because we can't take the perspective of a creature that echolocates. So, so, so I, we, can't, yeah. so we can't take the perspective of the chair either with its tiny bit of cotton. I don't think there is anything that it's like to be a chair. I think there's something that it's like to be the, the basic constituents of the chair. but Which are a little bit conscious. I actually don't think consciousness is, comes... It's a very ambiguous word. Some notions of consciousness we can make sense of degree, but I think the way I'm using it in this very simple sense of just experience, I don't think that comes in degrees. I think you either have experience or you don't. It's either something that it's like to be or it's not. So the claim is not that the particle is a little bit conscious. It's, it's conscious. It has experience, but of an unimaginably simple kind. Okay. That's so it has point. experience that's really hard to characterize and we, we can't know. But Nick, I want to go on and... and press you a little bit in, in response to this, but, but perhaps you could respond to Philip. So Philip thinks consciousness, at least for us, can be captured by what it's like. But I wonder whether we always know what it's like. I, mean, I wonder whether we're really always sure of what it's like. Th this phrase can be a little bit treacherous, as though everything appeared to us as it was. But well, I, I I'm, I'm, not, I'm not worried about that. I think I know what it's like to be in pain or to taste sugar on my tongue. I don't. There are other aspects of my mental activity which I might not be the authority on, but no, I know what it's like to feel. Um, and so I'm with Philip on that. It's just because I know, I know what it's like that I would deny the possibility that it could be present in a microstructure, which hasn't got any subject to know what it's like, which can't, as Philip's admitting now, doesn't actually have any phenomenal uh, experience. Dan Dennett once characterized panpsychism as, as pan, well, he said, let's compare it with pan-niftyism. Um, everything is a little bit nifty if you look at it. <laughs> um, and it's about as silly as that. You don't get anything back from panpsychism. You're just left with the original problem of explaining what phenomenal consciousness yeah. is uh, of the kind we know about and how it comes to be like it is for us. Now, that's what I see to be the scientific problem. I'd, I don't agree with Sue. I think Sue's example of talking what she means by consciousness is not very helpful here. Reversing a Necker cube doesn't involve any change in the phenomenal quality of it. There's a change in the perception of it. And when Francis Crick started looking for the neural correlate of it, he said, I'm not interested, I don't know how to tackle the hard problem. I'm simply interested in, in conscious cognition, what we actually know is the case about perceptions and memories and so on. He wasn't interested in phenomenology. 
So, so Council of Despair, I think that's the okay. accusation. Okay, I respond to this point and this point about theft over honest toil. I mean, in fact, there's plenty of precedence in science for non-reductive explanations. So sure, panpsychism is ex isn't explaining consciousness in terms <laughs> of non-consciousness, but there's plenty of precedence for this. I mean, take in the, in the 19th century Maxwell's theory of electromagnetism. He didn't explain electricity and magnetism in terms of the kind of mechanical properties and forces that science was already committed to. He postulated basic electromagnetic uh, properties and forces and, and explained electromagnetism on that basis. So the panpsychist just thinks that you know, when the final theory of consciousness comes along, and nobody has that yet, it's not like we've got a complete explanation, it won't explain consciousness in terms of non-consciousness. It'll, it'll start with basic forms of consciousness and build up from that. If Nick and Dennett are, are prepared to reject panpsychism for that reason, I think they ought to reject Maxwell as well. There's plenty, I mean, really, I think it's just a prejudice of materialists that you need to explain consciousness in terms of non-consciousness. Philip, it's, you know, maybe elementary particles have mass and charge and gravity and so on, but those are continuous with the properties of macros structures. You have uh, uh, mass as well, and, and you attract things by gravity. So you are on the same spectrum as the elementary particles. That makes it possible to build up from the bottom up to the top. But in the case of phenomenology, of phenomenal consciousness, I think we're saying that actually the elementary particles you're saying don't actually it's nothing it's like to be them. They don't have any subjectivity. No, no they do. They, uh, well, no, I they do. They, they, according to Philip, they do have subjectivity, I mean, but it's well, unimaginable. Is that yeah, well, okay. No, no I, I was <laughs> using that loosely. It's, I just meant incredibly simple in a way that's sort of hard. Maybe unimaginable was the wrong word. But actually, you touched on an important point then, because another misunderstanding of panpsychism, the, the kind of panpsychism I'd meant, it's not the view that the particle has its physical properties, mass, spin, and charge, and then these consciousness properties. The view is mass, spin, and charge are themselves forms of consciousness. And this is why th the influence of Bertrand Russell and Arthur Eddington from the 1920s, and it's the rediscovery of this that's really getting panpsychism taken much more seriously in academic philosophy. So Eddington pointed out, and this is contra what Nick just said, actually physical science doesn't tell you what mass, spin, and charge are. It just characterizes them behavioristically. You know, mass is characterized in terms of gravitational attraction, resistance to acceleration. These wholly characterize what mass does. It, physical science doesn't tell us what mass is, it just tells us what it does. So this opens up the possibility that mass, spin, and charge, those very properties that physical science characterizes behavioristically are them in their intrinsic nature forms of consciousness. So when, just finally, when Nick says, oh, it's obvious consciousness is immaterial, I agree with Philip. I didn't say, we don't know what matter is from physical science. So physical science gives us absolutely no grounds for saying, Phenomenal consciousness is immaterial. So he thinks no we know more about physical than we Thank do. Thank you. So the new Sorry. science, so the new science is not going to tell us what consciousness is either. It's going to be part of the basic set. Yeah, okay. absolutely. All it's right. a non Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses, and live events. Are you bored of the surface-level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. We're getting a way in which we're defining or at least characterizing consciousness in terms of experience or in terms of subjectivity 
And if consciousness is part of the basic set, it seems to drift all the way down. But can you, can you make sense well, of it Well, if it, it is, um, as Philip said, gravity and, and so on do things. Does consciousness do anything? We feel as if consciousness does something. We feel as if it's the power of consciousness is a very common phrase. I just think that is wrong as well. That, again, is a kind of dualist idea. We've got, in addition to seeing and hearing and thinking and so on, we also have consciousness, which has some kind of power. I want to go right back to what is it like to be a bat and Nagel. I think one of the problems there is there isn't anything it's like to be a bat. It w is my view that I've come to over a very long time. There's something it's like to be the bat's view of what it's like to be a bat. And in a human sense, what it's all about is how it feels to me and who am I. Now, if you believe in souls or spirits or astral bodies or any kinds of things, then you think that that's what I am, and I'm in here, and I'm a conscious being, I'm a conscious self of some kind, and I'm in control of my brain, and through my brain I control my hands, and so on and so on. But that itself is a construction, part of the magical show that, that Nick's talks about. And we're beginning to learn more um, about the construction of self. But we know how the idea of a self is constructed, the central part in the temporoparietal junction, taking in memories from the temporal lobe, taking in decision-making from the frontal lobe, and so on. The self is a construction. And part of that construction is a story that says, I'm in here, I'm in charge, I have this thing called consciousness. Now, this can just go away. I've meditated every day for more than 30 years. And it's quite easy to get into states where the duality disappears. It's just obvious, ah, there's only this. And there isn't me and the world out there. That, I think, may be a true insight into the state of affairs. It, it's easy enough to get to that as an insight, but then how you make that make sense in science or philosophy, I don't know. But this is my to and fro between learning the neuroscience and having those experiences and changing it right away from this illusion of me and the world into to oneness. So there's consciousness as a phenomenon, and of course the notion of self is much more demanding, you think highly constructed, and not all creatures need to have it. So I want to, I want to move to that idea, and I want to probe the idea of consciousness at different levels, or evolution of consciousness. Because if we're committed to yep. a scientific view, then presumably we think, so as we evolved, so consciousness evolved and actually started to come on the scene. Yep. Does it help to talk about the evolution of consciousness? Is that any easier to get a handle on? And indeed, is there a, a good way in which we can get theoretical purchase by distinguishing along the phylogenetic scale what <coughs> consciousness is like and where it comes in? Yes and no. Nick famously said, uh, if I can get this right, uh, we know we're conscious. It evolved, and, and therefore it, we, th it must have had a function, and we need to find a function. Uh, so if we have to find a function for it, that is the kind of natural way of thinking about it, but not if you take these alternative views or even a panpsychic view, because it would simply come along with the evolution of everything else. So I think that you can look on the evolution of consciousness, and most of the people writing out there about it now are asking questions like, when did it appear? What do you need to have for it to appear? And so on. And I'm thinking, no, that's the wrong question. It's, it's always there. It's just getting more and more complicated until you get to humans and possibly some machines and possibly some other animals that have a sense of self and have this delusion. So I think we're all deluded and have the wrong idea, but other, other creatures won't be. Okay. So the pain of an, another creature, let's say I stand on my cat's tail by mistake, I always hate doing that, I've done it a couple of times, and the cat goes, meow! Yes, I would say it's in pain, but it isn't also going, oh, why me, why did she stand on me, I hope it doesn't happen again, and all the stuff that... 
makes our pain worse. Nick, no. let's, let's have your view of well, your look, evolutionary I think theory. You, you, you've now put, given two bookends to this discussion. I mean, Philip thinks there's consciousness everywhere, and you're saying consciousness is actually nowhere. And both of you seem to be agreeing that actually you can't define it behaviorally. It's not having any effects. Now, that's exactly why I take issue with both of you, and because the very fact we're here discussing it suggests to me that consciousness has effects. I mean, what else are we discussing? Why do we mind about it? All these are questions which are generated by the fact that consciousness feels the way it does to us, and that makes us have all sorts of beliefs about our own metaphysical importance, our own significance, and about the, the ways in which we are different from outside reality. That's an effect. That's a very significant effect. And I think it's absolutely central to why consciousness evolved. It's an axiom of evolutionary theory, of course, that nothing can evolve unless it has some effects. Things evolve by natural selection because, in the end, they lead to more successful reproduction and so on. There have to be effects in the world of being conscious, or it couldn't have been selected. So, yes, as an evolutionist, I start from that position, and my scientific program would be to say, okay, consciousness has evolved. It's almost certainly evolved in the brains of animals uh, uh, over the course of evolution. It may possibly have evolved in other situations elsewhere, but in our case, it evolved in brains like ours. Let's see how a brain could possibly be creating this sense of living in the presence of qualia and, um, and, and all these uh, wonderful, mysterious qualities which we know from the inside as consciousness. And let's try and characterize those in objective terms so far as we can. Let's say, what is it, for example, about one special thing about conscious, being conscious phenomenology? It exists in what I've called thick time. Consciousness doesn't move along in the way in which the physical moment moves along from infinitesimally small instant to instant. We're always living inside consciousness. I've said it's like traveling in a ship which has both a prow and a stern and room to move around inside. Consciousness has these strange temporal properties. Okay, I, I want to come back to this issue of evolution and, and phylogenetic scale because it, 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 if you make the problem of how can there be consciousness go away by positing it as one of part of the basic uh, fundamental constituents, or it's there with the fundamental constituents, don't you still have an explanatory burden to talk about why it appears in the sort of form it has in more complex physical creatures like us, and you might think it's more simple in physically more simple uh, organisms or even particles, don't you have to still give us an idea of why the substructure, it seems, shows the consciousness differently? I mean, no one has a final theory of consciousness. It just seems to me that the problems the panpsychist faces, um, I mean, some people raise these problems and then say, oh, so panpsychists are rubbish. Uh, but, you know, it seems to me the problems they face are much more tractable than the problems faced by the materialist or the dualist or the illusionist. But, um, Can I, this isn't yeah. a discussion about panpsychism, is it? It's a con discussion about consciousness. Sure. Yeah. Panpsychism seems to me one of the silliest and most uh, 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 <laughs> empty theories of consciousness. I think we've we got let's, that you think yeah, that. Okay. Let's, that's let's, just rhetoric. Let's, that's let's just rhetoric. No, no, What's the argument? Up, up, up. Philip says things like, um, you know, it it's wouldn't make sense for consciousness simply to have suddenly popped into existence. Does Why not? It, in fact, I think it almost certainly Stop. did. Not pop in, but it came in over a relatively short time period. 
just as it pops into existence every day of our lives when we wake up from sleep, for example. We weren't conscious, and now we are. It has popped into existence in the development of an embryo. Consciousness emerges from non-consciousness. We know it does. We experience that every day. So why, why couldn't that happen in the course of, of the evolution of animals? I think it did. I actually think that, that sensory consciousness, phenomenal consciousness, is a relatively late addition to uh, the history of, of uh, okay, animal let's, let's life. Let's let Philip yes. answer that. Um, yeah, I never, I never said it couldn't. I mean, actually, between another panpsychist, Galen Strawson, I mean, he argues that you, know, you just couldn't get consciousness and non-consciousness. I've never argued that. The question is, uh, you know, what's, what looks, what's the more theoretically virtuous, most promising theoretical research program moving forward? And the thing I think Nick still isn't getting, that, that you, you keep interpreting it dualistically, like, there's the, the co like I'm saying, there's the physical properties, of course they do stuff, and then there's this extra thing. The point I think you still need to get is that physical science doesn't tell us what matter is. So the view is not that consciousness is this extra thing, it's that consciousness is the intrinsic nature of physical matter, of physical properties. And, and so, for my mind, the, the physical science tells us nothing about the intrinsic nature of matter. The only thing we know about the intrinsic nature of matter, as Russell and Eddington pointed out, is that some of it, namely the stuff in brains, involves consciousness. And, and this takes a while to absorb. We think our physical science is telling us what matter is, but once you realize that that's the only thing we know about, panpsychism starts to look much more probable. Okay. So that's the so, crucial so point. I, so, so I think that's <laughs> very, very helpful, because I think what you're, you're, you're doing is reminding us that, uh, of what panpsychism is addressing and what it's not addressing. Right. Okay, so it is addressing the issue about where it, it is to be located in the universe, namely it's, it's part of the physical ultimate constituents. Okay. But you did say, and I want to move on to this because this is our final theme, uh, you did say that you think it's a much more tractable research program to think how yeah. you know, the, all of these parts of consciousness come together to give us what we have. And what I'd, I guess what I'd like to hear and what I'd like to see as a possible rapprochement is how on that research program are you proposing to take advantage of some of the things that are being done in the current science of consciousness, including including current neuroscience. So for example, I was very surprised that both you and Nick think that you know what these simple uh, experiences or qualia are when you talk about something like the taste of a coffee. Well, we know it's not just due to taste, it's due to taste and smell and temperature, and it's actually a very complicated amalgam of things that makes it possible. So an awful lot of neuroscience shows us that we are wrong about the way our experience is produced, and there is a, there is a sense of a, a unity and simplicity that's not actually there, and when we see cases of pathology and brain damage, we start to see that it's actually something quite complex. So are you going to take advantage of that on this research program, and Absolutely. how does that fit in? Absolutely. I think it's worth pointing, and I always want to point out that, look, that, in my view, the neuroscientific data is completely neutral on dualism, you know, panpsychism, materialism. But not on the nature of subjectivity. Not, no, no, but, but, but I think what, what, what neuroscience gives is these you know, crucial f you know, correlations ultimately between what's going on in the brain and conscious experience. And then you need a theory to explain them. And you know, we give different, so I think of it a bit like um, quantum mechanics where you've got the basic empirically supported theory and then you've got different interpretations. And you know, th there are all these equal interpretations. It's not like materialism is the default position or, or the materialists are doing neuroscience. The panpsychist can take advantage of all of that. And indeed, one leading current neuroscientific theory, the integrated information theory of Giulio Tononi, and also defended by Christoph Koch, has panpsychist implications as well as being uh, 
having a fair amount of empirical support, the neuroscience is neutral. You've just got to look for the best th theory or theoretical research program. And I just think dualism and materialism have such deep difficulties. Okay, can science then uh, accommodate its current findings and the work that you do and still see panpsychism as open as a, as a possibility? That's a very confusing question, and I can't... Let me make it simpler. Yeah. Why don't Please. you like panpsychism? Oh, I do. I do. I do. Okay, well, I do. well and tell and us where you disagree mm. with Philip. Yeah, uh, yeah, fine. I, I, I do like panpsychism. I think my own view is, is, a, is actually a version of panpsychism, but rather different from, from his. The thing I wanted to pick on was Philip saying there's consciousness of simpler things and then conscious in something as complex as a brain. You're implying that brains are conscious. I mean, this is, as you know, it's called the mariological fallacy, attributing to something, something that should be attributed to something else. It's not brains that are conscious. Brains and bodies. So what is it? Pardon? Brains well, and bodies, you could you. say it's brains and bodies, but I wouldn't. I would say it is the representations or the stories that are being built by w whatever it is that leads to the illusion of there being, uh, the illusion of duality, the illusion that there is this separate thing called consciousness that kind of is given rise to by, by the material. So I am looking all the time at things that are at least in some way panpsychic, which is how this experience can be intrinsic to the fact that this evolved body is here. That's to me the problem. I can't know what it's like to be you, but can I know what it's like to be me? I think I disagree with Nick here. I really don't know what it's like to be me. And in meditation, and you know, the deeper and deeper you get into it, well, the less obvious it is what it's like to be me. There becomes just kind of stuff happening, and ooh, what is it? That's the sort of way that my thinking is taking me. And I think, to come back to this point about conscious brains, if we're making such a big mistake looking for how consciousness arises from a brain, you know, we need to make some very big steps before we'll know what to do with all this stuff. One final little point. There's some amazing neuroscience going on. We can now look and see that this person is thinking about a frog, and now he's thinking about the sky, and now he's um, imagining whatever. Even with people dreaming, you can do this now and see what they're thinking. And then people think they can find consciousness in the same way. That's where I think we're going wrong. So all those that knowledge about which bits of the brain look like a certain way when we're thinking about a certain thing, it's going to be really interesting to understand our minds but it's not going to tell us about this extra thing called consciousness because it's intrinsic. And if that's panpsychic, then I'm panpsychic. And you're a little bit panpsychic. No, it's not. Okay, all right. <laughs> no, I think, I think you are. But now will you join me in thanking our speakers, Philip Goff, Susan Blackmore, and the We hope you enjoyed this podcast, which was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. So what do you think? Has panpsychism got legs? Or is consciousness just an illusion? Let us know by tweeting at IAI underscore TV with the hashtag philosophy for our times. <laughs>